Kira. I'm Rachel, as Suds just said. Um, so we're Daniel chapter 3, so that's on page 760 of the Bibles, the church Bibles that are sitting there. I'll just pray to start us off. Dearest Father, thank you that you provide your word for us to read today. Thank you that you have written in the stories in our hearts and in your word. We pray that as we read those, um, some of the stories that are really familiar to us, that we won't ignore them, that we'll take them into our hearts and minds and apply them to our lives. In your son's name, amen. Okay, Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So... The satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials assembled for the de dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has de issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold or have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The command, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, Your Majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into pile of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. great to be here this morning. And for those who I haven't met, my name is Rob. I'm on the staff team here at City on a Hill. So you want to keep, your, keep the page open on Daniel chapter 3. We'll be referring back to that as we unpack this passage together. But first, let us pray to our God that he will lead us and guide us as we dive into this, this passage. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we have to, to hear from your word and to unpack it together. We pray that you will lead us and guide us in the Holy Spirit, that you will open our eyes and our hearts to, to receive your word and that it will impact our lives, Lord, and that you, Lord, will grow our love and our understanding of you and that we will be your followers, Lord, out in the community. In Jesus' name. Amen. So before my, my wife, Joy, and I, we had kids, uh, we spent a year teaching uh, English in South Korea, and we got work at a private preschool teaching four- to six-year-olds English, and we worked with a Korean co-teacher. So my Korean co-teacher and I would uh, take turns uh, teaching the class, 
and there was a boy in my class called Sean. And I had been teaching this boy for uh, nearly a week. And at the end of the class, at the end of the week, he, uh, the co-teacher came up to me and asked, who's this Sean that you keep referring to? And I'm a, I'm a little bit puzzled. So I spelt out his name, S-H-A-W-N. She was like, oh, you mean Sean. So how Americans pronounce Sean is not how us Kiwis pronounce it. And from that day forward, I felt this constant pressure to speak like an American and to teach with an American accent. Because I suppose that's what the Korean teachers wanted and that's what their parents wanted. They wanted their kids to sound like the movie stars that they watch in Hollywood. Now, I I've, I've didn't really see myself as a particularly patriotic Kiwi at that point, but I didn't want my accent stripped away from me. I, that was part of who I am as a New Zealander. Now, that's, that's, a, it can be a very, that's obviously a very surface-level sort of mild example of how we can be pressured to conform. But I was wondering here in New Zealand, us as God's people, uh, living in a society who aren't, we can feel that pressure can't we, out in our lives. That pressure to conform, to be like everyone else that's around us. Uh, that might be that pressure to have a few too many drinks at the work do because your workmates are encouraging you to. Or it could be that pressure to make Christmas uh, all about family and not about Jesus because that's what your family wants you to do. Uh, it could be that, that pressure to take your kid to that uh, birthday party on a Sunday morning, or the pressure to laugh at that crude joke, because everyone else around you is having a little of a laugh at it as well. As God's people, we can never escape that, that pressure to be like the world around us. So how do we respond to that as God's people who live among people who are not and are pressuring us uh, to not live as God wanted us to. So let's, we're going to dive into uh, Daniel chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to see how the Israelites are in a similar situation. Uh, they're no longer living in the promised land. Uh, they're now living among a foreign people, uh, under the authority of a king and a government uh, who don't follow their God and worship other gods. And so far in this story, uh, we're seeing in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have been taken out of Israel uh, into uh, Babylon to serve uh, in Babylon. And Daniel, uh, who, who's writ- who wrote this book, his purpose in writing uh, this book in the Bible is to instruct the Jews on how to live for God while in exile, um, but also as a future hope as an encouragement uh, to God's people who are really struggling, and life is hard for them, uh, living in this foreign land. So we're going to unpack the story together, uh, then we're going to see what truths that we learn about God, and then what is the implications of those truths for us today uh, as we live uh, under that pressure to conform. So in this, in this story, we have this epic showdown right, between King Nebuchadnezzar Uh, described as the king of kings, uh, the king of Babylon, uh, versus God, the God of Israel. Now, this passage uh, doesn't say where Daniel is at the moment, so we're not too sure why he's not mentioned, uh, but the focus is on his three friends. 
So we're looking at, uh, at verse 1 uh, in chapter 3. So we see that Nebuchadnezzar has built uh, a really large statue uh, out uh, in just outside of Babylon in the plain of Dura, and he calls all his officials together. Uh, so this is you know, a very a large empire, so we can presume it's quite a large number of officials and bureaucrats who are uh, gathered out in the plain. Could be thousands of them in this flat plain, all gathered together in front of this huge statue of gold. And then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, issues a decree. Um, verse 4, the, the decree is, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zypher, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So immediately we're seeing a problem here for the Jews, for God's people. God has delivered his people out of Egypt a thousand years ago beforehand, and he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, and instructed them how to live for God. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 5, so that should appear on the screen, this is what God has commanded his people. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for, for I, the Lord your God. Now, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego have a problem, and they've got to make a choice. Is it going to be King Nebuchadnezzar and his gods, or is it going to be the God of Israel? So when the instruments blare out and the thousands of people drop to their knees, immediately bowing down to that statue, in that sea of people, there stands Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, standing there, sticking out like a sore thumb. And at that moment, it could have been so much easier for them just to bow down, to pray. Maybe they could pray to their God instead. But instead, they decided to make a stand, to stand defiant, even though everyone around them is bowing down. And people notice, and we see that in, in verse 8. Uh, we see the astrologers and notice that they're not happy, and they take this to the king. And they go before Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, hey, you remember this decree and this punishment that you promised? And in verse 12, they say, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar is now furious. And the three men get brought to him, and he asks them this in verse 13. So let's look at that together. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up. And in verse 15, he, he repeats his threat again. Um, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So just repeat that last bit. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So Nebuchadnezzar is laying down the gauntlet right here. He's, he's laying down a challenge. It's Nebuchadnezzar versus the God of Israel. And, and he gives them one more chance to back down, to conform, 
But this is how uh, the three men respond in verse 16. Let's look at that together. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. So they're, they're saying that, hey, we're not going to explain ourselves. We're not going to negotiate here. Uh, we're not going to be persuaded. Uh, sure, there's, there's times for God's people to defend themselves, to justify themselves, uh, to, to debate. But here they're not arguing. They're not getting frustrated. They're not running off to form some sort of Jewish militia to, to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. They are coming before and accepting the punishment for their defiance. So they continue in in verses 17 uh, and 18. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And what, what faith and trust that these men must have had. And, and just honing in on that, that second half of that verse, uh, God, the God we serve is able to deliver us. They know that their God can save them, that can rescue them. Now, this is, it's, not a, it's not a passage that we can just whip out as, as proof that if we had enough faith and trust, then God can just, it will, God will just take all our, punishment, uh, all our um, persecutions away and all our trials and sufferings will just disappear. Uh, that's not what they're saying. Um, if we look at that first bit of verse 18, but even if he does not. So they're not doubting his power. What they're actually saying is, hey, our God can deliver us, can save us. But if it is his will and his purpose to not save us, we will still not worship and serve your gods. They are willing to die rather than worship and serve the Babylonian gods. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious and immediately orders the furnace uh, to be heated up seven times hotter. And so hot, in fact, and we can see this in verse 22, uh, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So there's no mistaking here that this event wasn't just some sort of fluke. Uh, it wasn't that the furnace wasn't hot enough. Uh, no, this story makes it really clear that this is a miracle, that it was so hot that the soldiers holding them burnt to death. But those three men were still untouched. And when the men were thrown into the furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar sees this, uh, sees this fourth figure in the furnace. And in verse 25... He says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, we, we're not too sure. The passage is not clear as to who or what this fourth figure is, um, whether that's Jesus or, or an angel. I mean, the, the point is, is that God has sent a servant into the fiery furnace to rescue his people. So Nebuchadnezzar uh, calls for Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego to come out. Uh, when it was evident that they were unharmed, he says this in verse 28. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And this great showdown uh, between Nebuchadnezzar and the God of Israel has ironically led to Nebuchadnezzar worshipping and praising God. And he, and he makes this new decree in verse 29. Therefore, I decree that the people of any language or uh, any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can serve, save in this way. And that last bit is really significant. For no other God can save in this way. And just you know, remembering that, that verse 15, uh, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? God has accepted his challenge and, and delivered and rescued his people. And that's led to him praising and worshiping God. So what, what do we learn about God from this story? Well, it's two important things. One, God is in control. And two, God delivers his people. So one, God is in control. So at the beginning of the story, it looks like that Nebuchadnezzar is the one in control. He's described as the king of kings. He rules one of the largest empires that the ancient world had seen at that point. Uh, the fact that he can build this giant statue made out of gold is testament to his power and his wealth. But the fact is, him and his gods are not in control. He couldn't force uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego to worship his gods. He couldn't even kill them when he wanted to. And at the very end of the story, he ended up worshiping and praising the God of Israel. And this, this part of Daniel was written uh, for Jews in exile, and they've been conquered. They've been taken away from their land, away from the temple where, their, where God resides. And to them, they might see that, hey, God is not in control. But this story is a reminder that God is very much in control here and that everything's unraveling according to his plan and his purpose. And, and it's, it's times like this when we can really question that God, you know, is God in control when, when the world seems to be falling apart around us, when it starts to look dire, when it might look like that God is not in control. There, I'm a, uh, I studied uh, history at university, and I, I really much enjoy uh, some of the stories in history. And uh, one of the uh, a pivotal battle in British history was the Battle of Hastings in 1066. So Duke William of the Normans invaded and faced King Harold of the Anglo-Saxons at Hastings. And their entire armies faced off with each other. Uh, with the Anglo-Saxons up on the hill, so you can see that. So the Anglo-Saxons of the, um, the English are up on the top of the hill there. And then the Normans are attacking up the hill, the bottom, in a line. They're trying to break through the defence. So they've got a strong shield wall, and they're going to try and break through that defence. And after hours of fighting, the Normans on, on the uh, left-hand side, they started to falter. And they started to retreat and run down that hill. And the Anglo-Saxons on that left-hand side started to chase him. And at that point, if you're, 
if we're in the, in the shoes of that Normans, of the Norman soldiers, we're seeing our friends die around us. We're outnumbered, and we're now running down the hill as fast as we can. We're being pursued by the enemy. There's rumors going around that Duke William, the leader, is now dead. And at that moment, that's it. That's done. The battle's lost. We have lost. When Jesus' disciples see Jesus arrested and see him die on that cross, his body hanging there, they thought, hey, it's it. God's not in control. It's lost. But the fact is, that battle, that was a, a turning point for the Normans. So it created a big gap, um, a massive gap, and the, the Norman cavalry, led by Duke William, uh, went into that gap, and it was a turning point, a victory for the Normans. It broke the defense of the Anglo-Saxons. So that, and with, with the disciples seeing Jesus die, Three days later, Jesus rose again and defeated sin. When we're in the thick of it, when we're in the middle of it, when everything looks like it's falling apart and that God is not in control, we don't see that bigger picture. We don't see the bigger plan, the bigger purpose that God has for his people. So when we get called a bigot and people get angry at us because we follow Christ, when we lose friends and family and they get offended because we're prioritizing Christ and Jesus and God over them. When, when our workmates and our manager gets frustrated at us because we're prioritizing going to community church or going to Sunday, uh, going to church on a Sunday rather than working overtime. It feels like it might look like that God is not in control when the whole world is against us. But we just don't see that bigger picture, that God is unraveling everything for the betterment of his kingdom. The second truth that we learn from, from this passage is that God delivers his people. So in verse, in verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar proclaims this, no other God can save in this way. So throughout the, uh, the Old Testament, we're seeing this repeated story of God delivering and rescuing his people. But when we see here in this story, yeah, it's not a true deliverance. It's not a true rescue, is it? Because they ended up dying a couple of decades later, don't they, from old age. They're still in uh, captivity in Babylon. But all these stories in the Old Testament and this story is pointing towards a future deliverance that is promised in the Old Testament. A future rescue that would rescue his, God's people from death and give his, God's people eternal life and true freedom. And this is fulfilled in the New Testament in Jesus. And the story is pointing to the future deliverance that we're going to see in Jesus. A servant of God who has been sent to the fiery furnace, but he didn't just join us in the fiery furnace to rescue us. He suffered and suffered in that fiery furnace to rescue his people and give them eternal life. So I encourage you, for those who uh, don't follow Christ yet, um, is your God worthy? Can your God do that? Because at the end of the day, everyone worships something in their life 
today it's, it's unlikely to be a golden statue, but everyone worships and serves something, some god. Uh, Tim Keller, a, a pastor in America, he says this about worship. This should be on the screen. You don't decide to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what you worship. Is your, is your God worthy? Can, can your God save us? Is your God in a life pursuing money and financial security, is that going to give you eternal life? Is that going to save you from death? Is a life seeking pleasure and happiness and good times at your deathbed? That's all gone. That's not going to save you. And repeating what Nebuchadnezzar said in 29, no other God can save in this way. No other God can save like our God can. So for God's people, how do we respond to these truths? To respond when we're under pressure? Well, we are to stand firm, just like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. So for for, for us, when we compromise... What we're saying is, hey, work, pleasure, being accepted, being loved by others, that's more important than God. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and when they sell everyone else bowing down and conforming, and all the eyes are on them, they chose to stand firm and not bow down. And effectively, they're saying, hey, God is more important than being accepted. That God is more important than life itself. Because the fact is, we're in a battle here. And the world around us, we're not on the same page. And it's there constantly trying to pressure us to conform, to compromise, to, to worship their gods before our gods. So will you stand firm? Will you stand firm when your sports team wants you to play with them on a Sunday instead of going to church? Will you stand firm when work wants you to work overtime and you're not going to be able to go to community group? You're not going to have the energy to be able to read and pray and spend time with God. Will you stand firm when your workplace wants you to uh, join in on the Pride Week events at work? Will you stand firm when you feel pressured to take work home and work on a Sunday so that you get the work done for Monday and not keep the Sabbath holy and separate and a day of rest. The world is constantly wanting us to compromise our beliefs and to put their gods first. But the fact is that these, their gods are temporary. They're fleeting. They're not going to give us eternal life. They mean nothing. And at the end of our life, it is God and God alone that can deliver and rescue his people. So to conclude here this morning, to finish up, how do we live as God's people uh, living in a world that pressures us not to? Well, this story shows us that we need to stand firm by worshipping and serving God alone. Uh, Why? Because God alone is in control and God alone can rescue his people. Only God, through his son Jesus, can make us right with God, make us righteous. Only through Jesus can we be included in his kingdom.
So I want to finish up with these few verses from the book of Matthew, in which Jesus uh, says in, in chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let us keep our eyes on above, that even though in the thick of it, even though we the pressure from society and it gets tough standing sometimes alone in our worship and serving of God, that we are heading towards an eternal life. We're heading towards a true reward and a true deliverance that is found in Jesus. So let us bow our heads and respond in, in prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Lord, and your encouragement that even though it, it can be tough, the pressure of society to, to worship their gods, to compromise and to conform, Lord, that you are in control, that you deliver us and rescued us, and you have a plan and a purpose that often we can't understand or see, but everything is unraveling for your purpose. May we stand firm, Lord. Stand firm, even though society wants us to conform, and that we will worship and glorify you. And through us standing firm, there will be a light in our community, Lord, and that people will come to share in the same hope that we have in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to respond uh, in song, and I'm going to invite the uh, band to come up. And we're going to sing uh, God is for us again, a new song. And it's really fitting uh, from what we've just read uh, in Daniel chapter 3, that even in the midst of the of pressure, of this being in the thick of it, God is in control, and God is for us. So let us stand and sing.